0: even if it seems like you've had a bad day, if you do even one thing or, you know, one small task or one movement forward or something, just, you know, know that you're getting one step closer to where you need to go and. There it is.
1: how are you good can you hear me yeah yeah i can hear you can you hear me yeah awesome man
0: it's good to see you again it's been i feel like we just we talked in uh april but it feels like it's been forever since we had a conversation
1: (laughs) yeah man yeah dude what's been going on man How, how have you been what's uh you want to talk about the big race first
0: yeah i'd love to get into it mostly just you know like just to talk about like the lessons i learned from that and like just the people over there you know about living life um but i really like that thing you brought up about divine timing that was super cool yeah and i was thinking a lot about that too
1: yeah man yeah i um Sorry, I was just trying to get my headphones working, but I'm just not going to fucking use them today. But um, yeah, dude, the divine timing thing is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently because uh, it's so crazy how like when things happen to us, we're so quick to judge whether it's like a good or a bad thing. And uh, I always bring up that story, like the ancient story of the uh, Chinese farmer. I think it's a Chinese farmer in the story, but how like uh, things will happen to him and people are like, hey, that's good. And he's like, yeah, maybe. And then something else happens and people like, Oh, that's so terrible. And he's like, yeah, maybe. But like, uh, like it's so true, man. It's so true how like things happen to us and we're like, Oh fuck, this is the worst thing ever. But you know, you have really no idea like what kinds of things you're being saved from when something like that happens to you and what, what kinds of things, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's so crazy how we just get like tunnel vision. We just get so wrapped up in our own world that we take everything personal And we have no idea what's going on around us in the universe, man.
0: Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, like, do you, I mean, there must be like a lot of, I think both of us probably have a lot of examples of that, like that divine timing and, you know, situations that we thought were like terrible situations um, that we just didn't, we just wondered why this is happening to us. Um, Took it personally, like you said, and then, in hindsight, you're like, man, you know, like if it wasn't for X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't be here doing this right now. Maybe there was something like that, that possibly led you to doing this podcast, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, dude, that's um, the story of my whole life is like always playing the victimhood card being like, fuck, I can't believe this happened to me. And then in hindsight, looking back at all the negative things that happened to me, it's like, That kind of led me on the path to where i am now like um this podcast i even started i i started it because um like going through years of depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts i remember like there was one day where um just reflecting back on um you know basically why i wasn't gonna kill myself and i remember thinking like oh it's because of family it's because of other things and and then i led me into the thought pattern of okay like if i'm gonna keep living like if i'm gonna keep doing this then i'm gonna try and alleviate this feeling for somebody else and um i ran a volunteer service on the downtown east side here in vancouver and there was a couple of different reasons why i stopped that and then i was just thinking about you know like how can i still fulfill this purpose how can i still kind of get the message out there and how can i Maybe like um, speak to somebody out there that is uh, representative of who I was when I was suffering, and and that's kind of how I started this podcast. And I I want I started off like interviewing people in like Vancouver, just walking around with a selfie stick and like just interviewing random people on the street. And then uh, when the pandemic started, it was like no one was no one was out and about. And even if they were, no one wanted to talk to you. They didn't want to like have, uh, interactions with random people on the street. So it was like, okay, we got to make another, um, pivot and kind of change the way that we're going to do this. Cause I can't really interview people on the street anymore. So it started off with like a couple of zoom calls like this. And then I slowly started to be able to coerce people to come and talk to me in person. And, it's just from there kind of developed into what it is now. So, yeah, this podcast is a good representation of that. What I do for work is a good representation of that. Getting, uh, leaving my old job and having to get a new job and everywhere, everywhere that I get self worth from now. Um, every, like every, uh, aspect of my life, whether it's, you know, what I do for hobbies, what I do to make money. Um, anywhere I'm at now that I'm actually happy to be at was a pivot from something that was terrible.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, you know, thinking about why I left my career in civil engineering, um, even why I started running in the first place. Um, I think that story has been told many times yeah. about how I just, struggle with my mental health and was just looking for an outlet and just one day decided that I was going to go out and run a quarter of a mile. And, um, you know, I would not have imagined in my wildest dreams that that terrible situation I was in leading to that one choice and continually making the choice to go back out and run again and again was going to lead to doing the things that I'm doing now. Um, and falling in love with endurance sports, which ultimately led to me becoming a partner in this business. Um, so that also just, you know, is one example of a terrible situation leading to where I am now. So it's just, you
1: just never know where something's going to lead. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Um, dude i'm excited to hear about this race though i'm excited to hear about how everything happened and and your biggest takeaways but before we get to the takeaways um just tell me about the experience like walk me through like what like any like any details you can give like flying there what was the journey like what was it like to do the five-day tre- it was a five-day trek to where you started right where i'll just a, let you tell uh, the story
0: it was a uh 12-day trek um <laughs> it was were- And it was honestly one of the most, like, probably up to this point, the most life-changing experience I've ever had, not only because of how difficult the trek was and how difficult the race was, but just being able to do it immersed in a totally different culture from uh, what Western culture is um, and to be immersed with a group of people you know, who aren't bothered by the nuances of like what the Kardashians are doing or, (laughs) you know, like what the politics of the world are. They're just out there in the mountains, just making their living either as Sherpas, you know, going up and down the mountain or, you know, farming crops or just, you know, selling a product along the way. And You know, it was just a totally different environment and to be able to be a part of that environment and to be able to do a trek that challenged me from top to bottom, you know, going from almost, man, like Lukla was less than 3,000 meters. Um, that was already a high starting point. And then Everest base camp was at 5,400 meters, um, And to be up there and to experience the day-to-day struggles, um, while being immersed in that and to be able to race all the way back down 70 kilometers was just a life-changing experience, um, that I'm processing even at this moment as we speak, you know,
1: (laughs) so, so tell like, uh, for people that are listening, like tell like kind of the experience of like flying there, like where'd you fly into and what was the 12 day trip like to get to where you started?
0: Yeah. So I, uh, flew in to, so I'm from Los Angeles and I flew into Kathmandu, which is a long, long travel date. It's like 32 hours. I mean, it's 17 hours from LA to Singapore and then Another six hours after twelve hours in Singapore, so I get over to Kathmandu, which is already um, above one thousand meters, um, and then spend a couple of days there. And then we take, we go to the local airport and we take a plane from what they call the world's most dangerous airport um, in Lukla, <laughs> and it's like this janky like propeller plane and i'm sure for safety liability reasons they don't let you record in the cockpit because they have like a rusty first aid kit in there that i'm sure is not up to date and the pilots are giving you thumbs up while they're like navigating this chart and and the plane's going up and down (laughs) and so you get to lukla which is like one of the bigger relatively speaking towns up there And that's kind of like the hub of like the start of the trek to base camp. Um, And then we took 12 days to get up there. It was a slow ascent because one of the biggest rules to avoid getting altitude sickness is not too high, not too fast. Um, And the goal, I think one of the mental aspects of the whole thing was knowing that you started this trek. And your start line for the race, you haven't even reached the start line of the race. Like, I mean, imagine that that was one of the biggest challenges to me is imagine waking up, you know, in your bed for a marathon and going, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm tapered. I'm the best shape I could be. I'm ready to go. I'm loaded up on carbs. You don't get that in this race. You know, you, you have to focus on like the trek is half the battle. And when you do get to the start line, everybody is cold, hungry, and sleep-deprived. And and yet, there was just so much, like, just being out in that community, there was so much gratitude, even on the bad days. But basically, to kind of sum up what the whole race is, like, it's a 12-day trek from Lukla to Everest Base Camp. And then on the day of the race, you travel from Everest Base Camp at 5400 meters down to namche bazaar which is the sherpa capital um at around 3800 meters and you do that in less than 24 hours
1: man that is insane that is insane and um did you see and did you see anybody get altitude sickness or anything like that as a matter of fact,
0: uh, yes, they're, thankfully our group for the most part avoided major altitude sickness, but you could see the symptoms everywhere in our group. I mean, I dealt with, I had three really bad days on the trek, uh, one of which, um, so every day we did a measurement of our, like our oxygen saturation, and there was one day where I was at 92%. And the next day after the climb, I felt nauseous and just really like tired and my oxygen uh, percentage just plummeted to 75%. Um, and that day I was just like, uh, I was trying to play it off. Like, I'm cool. I'm cool. And everyone's like, Gandhi, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. But everyone said I was spaced out, um, There were other people in our group who struggle with appetite. I mean, people struggle with like the mental aspect of it, you know, thinking like, because you're doing this climb on this trek and you're already out of breath, there's this whole psychological mental thing going around. Like I can barely trek this thing. How am I going to run this thing? You know? (laughs) Um, so that was going around,
1: man, that, that must be so insane, man what um did, did your mind like play tricks on you too where you're like man i think i'm okay or am i am i getting altitude sickness or like do those thoughts like kind of race around in your head too
0: oh absolutely um i had to try to keep a positive attitude even our sherpa head you know rajendra rai he, i mean he was like saying like you know what happens happens but you can't like you can't like psych yourself out. And he's basically like, if you think you're going to get altitude sickness, you're going to get altitude sickness. You know, you just have to deal with what happens. And honestly, it's very hard not to feel that way. Cause you get the slightest headache or you feel a little nausea or your oxygen levels plummeting, or you're just not, you're, you're struggling to eat. I mean, I lost like five kilos, you know, doing this whole thing. Um, I still haven't gained that weight back. Uh, and it starts to play tricks on your mind, you know, like it's just a lot of like, Um, I think one good example is when I was at base camp and the location before base camp, this place called Goric Shep, which apparently uh, means dead rat because it's like a small saloon town um, that like, It snows. I mean, there's nothing there. There's like five houses in Gorikshep. It sits on top of a frozen sand lake. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people were dealing with this thing where if you wake up in the middle of the night, feeling like somebody stepping on your windpipe because you can't breathe. And I remember waking up gasping for air and we spent two nights there. And I just remember mentally just going man, is this it? You know, like I started psyching myself out for the first time and started to panic a little bit. I mean, I think the psychological part was equally as tough as the physical part. And both of them kind of intertwined into each other.
1: Yeah. And what happens if you get like really bad altitude sickness? Like, do you just die or like, what happens to you? Like, I'm not even familiar with it.
0: It depends on exactly what happens, but there's this thing that they have no, there's this thing called haste and hape, which they have no explanation for why it happens to certain people even to this day. It's called, um, so haste is cerebral edema where liquid, where like fluid starts to fill up your brain cavity. And then there's like HAP which is pulmonary edema where like fluid starts to fill up your lungs. Um, and that one, I think psychologically got a lot of people because we had this thing passing around that they call the kumbu cough, named after the kumbu ice fall. Um, I just recovered from mine like three, four days ago, but basically everybody's like spitting stuff out. And like, you just have this like bad cough because of like, um, the high altitude and low humidity. And I think it started to get in people's heads cause you're like, man, am I developing this pulmonary edema, you know? But basically what happens, um, if something like that happens, the only cure is to get down to a lower altitude. And so even though they have helicopters running there frequently, if the weather is bad, then the only way they're going to get you down is on a caravan. um, And your life is dependent on how fast they can get you down, pretty much.
1: Dude, that's insane. Because I remember watching um, the documentary on Nims die. And Mm -hmm. I was like, uh, when they had to save that guy, I'm sure you watched it, but like when they had to save that guy. uh, Nims is like the mountain forest gum. That guy is amazing. But just, I, I was just like, in my head, I was just recalling that that part where they had to save that guy that was lost on the mountain and they were like sharing oxygen tanks. That's crazy. Did you, were you guys using those things as well? Like those oxygen tanks? Does that help you? We had no oxygen
0: tanks, but I believe they had um a canister or two within the medical staff just in case. And thankfully nobody needed it, but to answer a question from before we actually did have somebody not be able to start the race because of Kumbukov, and they had to be helicoptered down to Kathmandu because their life was essentially in danger um but yeah I mean it's uh it's good yeah I remember that NIMS documentary and um funny thing funny quick thing about nims is he was at base camp just uh, days before we got there doing his last expedition of the season with his uh
1: expedition group wow man that's so sick imagine if you had gotten to meet him that was that was so sick
0: yeah and actually as a matter of fact um what made this year special was it was the platinum jubilee or the 70th anniversary of the very first ascent of mount everest by uh tenzing sherpa and edmund hillary so even on the plane ride to kathmandu i met edmund hillary's grandson on the plane out of nowhere <laughs> and then my uh one of our teammates met uh I'm, i might be butchering his name but reinhold uh reinhold messner who is essentially the i think you might have heard of him in the documentary he's essentially the uh um like what you call like the goat of like mountaineering he's the first person to do like the 14 peaks um yeah yeah uh, so he was just hanging out in kathmandu uh, uh, i assume for the platinum jubilee but seems like a lot of big names were out
1: there that's crazy man so all this happens before the race um what's like the experience like on the race like what what's it what's uh the beginning like maybe the morning of race day like or what's going through your mind
0: well i could tell you that the two nights i was at base camp because it was so cold um and because the race was running through my mind at that point i mean i could not sleep a wink like those last like i was just in and out of sleep those two to four like those last four nights leading up to the race um which you know, like all due respect, it is an honor to stay at base camp because the only two groups that get to stay at base camp are people who do this race and people who do expeditions to Mount Everest. So, um, being able to camp there was an honor, but that being said, I wanted to get the hell out of Dodge at that point. <laughs> um, but race morning, you know, had to wake up at two 30 because the ultra people started at five in the morning. And I just remember stepping outside the tent after a breakfast, uh, which was the same thing every single day. It was like a basic oat porridge, a bland oat porridge. And, um, you know, we'd step outside and the sun rises early there, like 445. And it just looks, they're taking, they're walking us over. I mean, Keep in mind the marathon is over 150 people, but the ultra is only 19 of us. Um, So when they walked us over to the ice fall, there's only a handful of us, the Kumbu ice fall. And everything is tinted like the color of the snow, like blue. It looks like an apocalyptic environment. I have no idea what I'm doing. We get over there 15 minutes before the race and I have the audacity to take off my puffy and like give it to the Sherpa. Cause they're going to take it down. It's like my warm gear, you know, don't need it for the race. And I'm like, why did I do this? I will tell you it was the longest 15 minutes of my life because not only have you been, have I been training for this thing for months, but I just trekked. I mean, I made my way to a whole nother country. I trekked for 12 days. And that, and yet this 15 minutes feels like forever. <laughs> um, and so we start the race at five. There's not much fanfare. I mean, the people at base camp expeditioners and Sherpas and everyone is watching us. Like we're the crazy ones. Um, and we kind of just go off from base camp to like the whistle of the marshal, like it's just a simple whistle. And I just remember my hands already being frozen and like, just feeling numb and i was like man did i mess up with my gloves am i gonna get frostbite like i was starting to freak out a little bit um but i can tell you that all the international runners were power hiking at this point because any chance that you tried to run even a little bit your lungs were just gonna be so gassed um Meanwhile, the Nepalese runners who were doing the race, they stormed off. Like they were just running at sea level. It was insane. (laughs) Is it just because they're used to the altitude there or? Yeah. I mean, uh, the eight of, I think six of the eight of them were actually from the Sherpa clan. So they were just used to the altitude up there and the environment and they were just flying. Like they were on, like, like they were on, like they were doing a road marathon, I mean, you know, the course record for the marathon was set by a Sherpa and he did it in three hours and 24 minutes, which is some people's, which is some people's road time. You know, that's probably my road time. I mean, they're on another planet and we had so much respect for what they did.
1: That's man. That's insane. That's so crazy, man. So what uh like how how cold is it how cold is it there what's the temperature like in celsius it was minus 15 at base camp
0: the morning we started <laughs> it was so cold and i think it dropped below that in the middle of the night because there was like condensation on top of the uh um on top of the tent on top of my sleeping bag outside of it and A lot of stuff was frozen. Like my shoes were hard, rock hard for a while. I mean, it was freezing cold. And then as we went down, it started to get warmer, but for the ultra, we stayed up. I mean, above 4,500 meters for almost 75% of the race. So it continually stayed cold and the weather just kept changing on you. I mean, it was... It was, I've never seen anything like it in any race.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine what that's like, man. I uh, I wouldn't want to be running in negative 15, man. The <laughs> coldest day of the year, I think last year, was like negative six. And like maybe like with wind chill was like felt like negative 15. Oh, that's man. like the coldest day of the year. I was not, I don't think, actually, I might have gone for a, like a 5k run but even then it's like just a jog like i'm not running a fucking marathon man that's insanity to think that those guys do a full marathon in that weather that is insane it
0: is incredible uh what everyone does and even the other runners who did this thing like just have to commend them for like towing the line for something like this i mean some of them were, some of them hadn't even run their first official marathon yet. And they were doing the marathon up there. I mean, it's quite the story to me is like, when you, I can imagine them telling somebody like, Oh, my first marathon was the Everest marathon.
1: And that person just incredulously just gone, what, you know, what, uh, so the, the marathon is uh 42 K right. 42 and a half or something like that. Yeah. 42 and then uh the ultra was 70 70k man and you did that and how how long did that take you the 70k I was out there for 18 hours and 7
0: minutes um it was a long day from 5am to
1: 1107pm it was a long day dude that's insane what's going through your mind at that like uh i'm sure like for the whole 70k you had many different thoughts and i mean we talked last time about how you've been training without headphones or listening to music or anything like that like what kinds of thoughts go through your mind when you're doing something like that other than what the fuck am i doing here
0: (laughs) well the thankfully the what the fuck am i doing here didn't come until the very last climb of the race that was (laughs) when i came into the why why do i pay for the shit you know (laughs) Um, but there was a lot of moments of just like, man, like struggle, like just, there were a couple of moments where I was like, man, I don't know if I can do this. Cause I'm like, which is, I I don't want to say that's unusual for me, but like, I know through my experience that when you do a race, you're going to have moments like that. And yet I felt like those moments almost had me, you know? That's how difficult it was. Um, mostly the climbing because they had you climbing above 4,500 meters and now you're going at race pace. Um, so every 10, 15 seconds, my body just felt like it had a limiter on it. And I felt like I was just gasping for air. Um, and I thought if I take another step after this, I might either clot like collapse or I might just like you know, go past the point of no return and get disoriented, which you know, I can get into that at some point. At one point I got so disoriented I almost fell off a cliff and I got and my Sherpa Pacer saved me. Um and it's also the same cliff where we saw a yak fall off the cliff during um during the trek. But I mean I think the biggest thing was besides that was I just tried to fixate on gratitude and I just tried to get into a meditative state and just focus on like the kilometer in front of me. Um, and I think doing that no headphone training and uh, I think that helped me out a lot because, you know, I didn't have anything to hide away to. Um, I had become so familiar with the patterns of my brain and the thoughts I was going to have that i was able to just tell myself all right just keep moving to this next checkpoint all right, just keep moving to this kilometer just keep doing this climb you know um eat this eat these calories drink this water and i was able to keep pushing through those moments but i can tell you it got very tough um and the uh physical toll of doing those climbs started to wear on me mentally And I remember the Sherpa looking at me a few times and going, man, are you sure you can do this? Like, um, you know, he's like, do you want, you know, we can stop at this lodge, get some hot tea, you know, um, like figure out if you want to keep going from there. And I remember the third time he asked or fourth time he asked, I just turned to him and I said, don't worry, man. Like I basically said something along the lines of this is all part of the strategy. I mean, like whatever it is, is what it is. I'm just going to keep moving. Um, and I just kept going and, um, it's hard not to look around and feel energy from the environment because I don't think there's a single track on the cliff side like that, where you're looking at all these snowcap peaks and seeing like mountain goats and yak and, amazing wildlife and not feeling some measure of gratitude and wondering what you did to be able to deserve a spot in a race like this, you know, especially knowing a few years ago, you wouldn't even be capable of something like this. So I think I fixated on that a lot and it gave me a lot of strength.
1: Dude, that's incredible. Wow, man. I wonder, um, if the Sherpas just like kind of have conversations between each other, like, yeah, I got this guy to quit. Yeah, I got that guy to quit. <laughs> the whole time he's like telling you, like, hey, bro, like, it's okay if you just want to stop. And you're like, shut the fuck up, man. That's already like, that's already my inner dialogue. I don't need you saying it too. Like, you know, it was funny, I think,
0: with the Sherpa Pacers, because I was with this Japanese guy named Takumi. So there were four of us, right? There were two Sherpa Pacers, um, which, by the way, they gave us a Sherpa Pacers after 33 kilometers onwards because they changed the course leading up to the very last day. So what we started with and what we knew was going to happen, every every, for the last six days, every two days, we met the organizers and they were like, oh, this changed. Oh, this changed. And then they were like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll give you a pacer. Um, But I just remember that we had conversations with them um and that stuff always kept coming up and the funny thing is they held themselves up they held up really well but by the end of the whole thing at the night time you could tell that they weren't runners because when we were doing the last climb even the sherpas were gasping you know it's tough when the sherpas are gasping for air um i think i think towards the end for them it was more like it was starting to be more like, I love you, man, but I don't know if I want to be out here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe I need to make this guy quit. Um, but all due respect, I mean, Navaraj and Neil were like super supportive and there's no way me and Takumi could have finished the race without them.
1: I mean, absolutely no way. Yeah, dude. That's so crazy, man. Did uh, the Japanese dude almost fall off the cliff as well? What happened there? What, what how does that happen?
0: Uh, so he was, he was a bit ahead of me, so I don't know where he was at that point. Um, uh, we didn't tie back in until the last 10 kilometers, but how something like that happens is you have an unprecedented roadblock where you're supposed to be on the course and you have to like travel up and around this like very, I mean, this trail hasn't, looks like it's been out of commission for like like a long time it's very unmaintained like parts of it are just crumbling and falling off like it's just it's not even like it's it's so so narrow i mean like you can turn if you even lean a little bit to the left like you're facing the cliff side um and the chance to plummet like a few hundred meters to your death i mean and for me i guess the way that happened is just um it was one of those episodes i told you about where like you're just climbing up and i think i pushed the limiter too far and, and all the climbing was starting to take its toll on me the trek was starting to take its toll on me you can imagine all this stuff is starting to accumulate together you're not at the start line 100 percent and you're and now it's starting to affect like your mind state um and the terrain is very technical. None of it is very flat. Even the flat stuff has a lot of rocks on it. So the whole time, like you're engaging your mind just as much as your body, because you have to watch where or not to turn your ankle and like how to move. And every move has to be intentional. So just mentally exhausted. And so I got really disoriented and I just fell on top of one of my trekking poles and it just knocked the wind out of me. And then I kind of stumbled over to the side and my shirt and, and my Sherpa pacer like grabbed me like underneath my armpits and just pulled me by the shoulder. And he was like, slowly, slowly, like, it's like chill, you know? And I was like, I'm good. I got this and just stood there for like 15 seconds and then started going really slow. I was like, I don't need to go fast on this section i don't need to go fast period because um it was already ingrained i mean when it first happened when that yak incident happened on the trek uh going the opposite direction up to base camp it was already surreal seeing like this big creature just like fall off the mountain and like fall with the thud like we saw the whole thing and who would have known it would be foreshadowing for something that would have almost happened to me. But even then I thought of it as like, unfortunately that yak was a warning sign, you know, like be careful on this trail. Um, and it still almost happened to me. Um, but insane is the only
1: way I can describe it. (laughs) Dude, that is mental, man. What, um, like what are these sherpas like like what's uh what's it like when you get there and you just start meeting them like what's um like the cultural differences or like what's uh how like what's it like interacting with these types of people um just very simple friendly
0: people i think just due to the fact that most of them live out in like Lukla and in the mountains and very strong sound minded you know, they don't overcomplicate things from what I've seen. They're very much like our Trek leader was very much like whatever happens, happens, you know, nothing is impossible. Just keep a positive attitude um, and just move slowly and just very laughy, like joyful people too, you know, very simplistic, not thinking about too many over complications just thinking about the next step um and just some of the friendliest people i've ever met you know and all of them have amazing stories i mean raju our trek leader had 37 has 37 years of experience so we got to hear a lot about the stuff he's seen and you know it means a lot when he says if you listen to what i have to say like you will be fine But whatever happens, happens, you know. Um, And even just like talking to us, I mean, there was a level of respect because for them, you know, normally the people they're guiding in the two trekking seasons are people who are trekking, you know. For them to see people who are absurd enough not only to do the marathon, which is one amazing thing already, but to do the 70K, there's already kind of a mutual respect there. Um, But just uh, in the way they act and the way they present themselves, they're very present in the moment. And although they're very good planners, you know, they're not anxious about the past. Um, They're very just in the moment or thinking about their next move. And I really
1: started to pick up on that. Wow, man that's crazy the whole thing is just such a I've been telling people I'm like yo I have a buddy in la and he's to do this thing and they're like what it's uh such a crazy feat man like how do you um like now that you kind of discuss like kind of the journey and, and everything there what like what kind of takeaways do you have like what kind of um how has this changed your life or shaped you I think it's just, I think
0: every single time I do something like this, but especially after doing something like this, one of the things I realize is that you can have a really bad day where you feel like it's all like, it's all done. Like the days I had with altitude sickness, the days I struggle with my mind, the days wondering if I'd make it to the start line and even during the race, wondering if I'd finish and realize that there's still a silver lining in every day, like you know, even with the days where I was struggling, um, the silver lining was always, but I still made it from point A to point B despite that. Um, and I still got one kilometer closer to where I needed to be despite the struggle I was going through. And tomorrow is a brand new day, another opportunity. And all I have to do now is just stay present and get right. Um, and I think going through something like that the cycle psycho- the psychology of dealing with like the altitude the weather um not showing up to the start line in great shape and then doing this race um in 10 times less the time because it took 10 days to get from namche bazaar to base camp and then i did the same thing going the other way in 18 hours so the psychology of that and all these things has, I think, shifted me into an even more calmer person. Like, you know, life's problems, I think, are still... One of the things I learned is that life's problems are still life's problems, you know? Like, they're still going to stress you out. Like, they're still going to, you know, cause tension in your life. Um, But I think it's the way... I think in doing hard things, you learn how to handle these situations better. I think you start to gain a new perspective on it and you start to realize, well, you know, my options are like, this is how I feel. But my options are A, B and C. Like these are really the three things that are in my control right now. Um, I'm going to have to choose one of them to keep moving forward. Um and so i think this whole race just gave me a new calmness and a new perspective on problem solving and just realizing how many things as a society in western society we take for granted like a simple meal um like having a warm meal at the end of the day in the trek and having some sort of like bed even if it was a cold one um being able to have like a cup of tea, like the, I started to like those things started to give me immeasurable gratitude because like they meant so much in that moment. Like I posted a picture of tomato soup on my story and everyone was like, it just looks like tomato soup out of a can. I'm like, I know, but it was warm tomato soup at the end of a day, you know, (laughs) like it's just, you start to fixate on gratitude and gain perspective
1: pretty much on problems in life. Yeah, man, I bet it's um, yeah. dude. the next thing, next time you're worried about like someone not responding to an email or, or someone tagging you in something that you pisses you off on Instagram or something, you like think <laughs> back to the, think back to the Sherpa and you're like, he's dealing with survival right now. And I'm worried about this.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly it's just
1: the things people
0: worry about and you know I'm not it's all relative right um everybody has their challenge everyone has their own Everest or their own challenges um but like it just it's just like you know you gain such a different perspective on all that stuff and you know whatever that person does it goes back to what Raju was saying where it's just like well you did what you could, right? You, but what happens happens, you know.
1: Yeah, it's um, I, and I think, dude, I think that that's like the importance of doing things that fucking suck, is like just changing your your perspective completely about some of the other issues that you have to deal with in life. Like my um, my cousin sent me a meme the other day, jokingly but it was like literally one of the realest things ever. And it was, it was like, um, it's a kind of a popular meme, but the top of it said, like, if you start your day off with a run and then the bottom of it said, then you, then you know that nothing worse can happen to you in that day or something like that along those lines of like, you know, you've already done the worst thing that's going to happen to you. If you like wake up early and go for a run and he's like, now I know why you run every single morning. And I'm like, seriously, man, for real. Like that's literally it. Like he like sent it as a joke. It's a yeah, here I got I pulled it up. He said, Starting your day off with an early morning run is a great, great way to make sure your day can't get any worse than how it started. Uh-huh. And I'm like, man, for real. Like that's exactly it. Oh, I
0: love it. That, that's amazing i love that he hit the nail on the coffin i know i love how he hit the nail on the head with that one and he was just joking
1: yeah i'm a, I'm gonna send it to you when we're done here because it just made me laugh so hard i'm like man that's literally it that's so awesome but man
0: i absolutely agree about like doing things that suck I mean you know like you get out there and you keep a daily almost a daily regimen of like doing like at least a, you know, your five kilometer runs. Um, you know, I know you're putting in the work for jujitsu, like that post, that reel you put up today about like, you know, owning your failures and making a failure highlight. I mean, absolutely (laughs) incredible. Like I had to, I had to match that, but I was like, there's no way I can match how badass this is, man.
1: I, I, man, I, um, I started my day off today. The reason I did that, I started my day, well, it actually started with a conversation with um the the my instructor, the guy that teaches me jiu-jitsu, where we were talking about how um you know, a lot of people lack like the fundamentals of of uh jujitsu because everything that's on Instagram is like the highlight reel stuff. Like it's like check out this choke you can do and check out this like flying arm bar and, and nobody posts like the fundamentals of like how to get out of a side control. Like when someone's just on top of you pinning you down. Cause it's not it's not like exciting, it's not sexy. You never like it's no there's no like flashy trick like it's just fundamental movements and and we were talking about how like people only post their highlight reels people only post like the coolest things and um after that that was a like a few days ago and then this morning i woke up and uh, i had like kind of like my to-do list like my checklist and um it's kind of like a practice that i have it's not very uh not very like fancy or anything a lot of people do it where i just have a post-it note i write down things to do and um it was kind of a recovery day so it was like 200 push-ups 200 sit-ups and then a run and a stretch and as i'm on my uh, and before i went for my run i do my push-ups i do my sit-ups and uh i film all my jiu-jitsu matches so i'm re-watching like my all my losses because i'm like i need to think about what i want to focus on before my next competition in a couple months because i just did a competition a couple weeks ago and uh so i'm re-watching the matches that i lost trying to pick on like um one or two things i need to learn from and um just like like two things basically that i can focus on every time I go into training, like I need to focus on these two things and I'm rewatching them and I'm like, I think I'm going to make a highlight reel of my biggest fuck ups. And then I was going on my run and I was like, maybe I should actually do it and make it into a reel that I could put on Instagram just so I can be reminded of it. Like I want to save it on my phone and I want to make a montage. So like when I feel like skipping training, or doing anything like that. Like I can just rewatch it and be like, re re light the the fire inside my belly, you know, like, and I was like, I'm just going to post it. Fuck it. This is epic. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to post a highlight reel of my losses, man. And it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger. The more I compete. Yeah. I, I love that,
0: that it's going to get bigger and bigger, the more you compete, because I had this talk with somebody, I mean, a friend just recently about like you know if you if you do things that challenge you and if you do hard things like you're gonna fail and if you're not failing then are you really trying hard enough are you really pushing the boundaries of growth um, and I also really agree with the fact that um, people only post their highlights I think it happens a lot in running too um, there's a lot of like man look at up like reels of like somebody running really fast or somebody bombing down a hill or somebody like crossing the finish line. But there's not a lot of like um, I wouldn't call exciting, like, Hey, check out this video of me and my new foam roller, you know, <laughs> um, or like check out this awesome news, like toe stretch or whatever. Um, <laughs> it just, it just doesn't grab people. But the truth is that that's like, a lot of the work that has to happen in the shadows you know for you to be able to do something like this they call it the unsexy stuff i mean i think that makes up the bulk of what you do and um you know uh when you talk about like failure like how did you were, were you always When you think about failure, did you always think about it as something that lights a fire in your belly or has your perspective on failure changed over time or or
1: through jujitsu? Um I've you know, I um early in my life, I never like um I was one of those guys that was just very like average at everything. I was I never had like any exceptional skills in uh, really anything in my life, to be honest with you. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. I'm sure a lot of people identify with that. But I developed this mentality pretty early on in life. um, In, you know, school projects or in athletics or, you know, really anything that if I'm going to fail, I want to make it look like I'm not trying. So it doesn't look like I'm trying and still failing. I'd rather be the guy that's like not trying. And that's why I'm failing kind of thing. So I, I fell into a lot of self-sabotage that way in, um, yeah, in many aspects of my life, like with my grades, with my like sports, with anything like that. I never really applied myself because I felt like if it hurt less and it was more expected to not try and then fail than if I actually tried my hardest and failed. And so I never really learned how to lose with grace because I uh, adapted that coping mechanism. Like I, I, I was like, I'll just become the class clown instead of the guy that's like trying hard and failing. It, it seemed like a better avenue to go down for me. And um, yeah, man. I uh, didn't really start applying myself in a lot of areas of my life until I was probably 17. Like I think grade 12, my last rugby season in high school was when I was like, okay, I, I want to do this. I want to get better. And and I got more competitive with it. And I used to get really mad when I, when we lost. Or if I fucked something up, I would like be pissed off. I'd be swearing. I'd be yelling. I'd fucking... Hit people like I like I was just a a meathead man, and I remember like I had a rugby coach. I'll never forget it. He probably doesn't even remember me, but he told me that he literally looked at me one time. He said, "We win with grace and we lose with grace," and it never impacted me until uh, later on in my life. Yeah, I, I got into bodybuilding and I only competed one time. I came in fifth place out of like probably 12 or 13 guys. Uh, I felt like a failure then. And uh, I I never ended up competing again. And it wasn't until I started in jujitsu and just day in and day out, just getting dominated by other people where it was like, it, it never really clicked with me. In, until like maybe a year or two in, but I was like looking at everybody that was beating me and realized they were in my shoes at one point. Like this person didn't start off being able to dominate someone else. This person started off being the nail and now they're the hammer. And if I stick with this long enough, that might be like, I might be able to achieve that because like, there's a lot of people like jujitsu is one of those sports where there's a lot of people that you would never they're very unassuming like it's kind of like there there's guys that are amazing that are jacked and built like fucking bodybuilders and then there's guys that are amazing that you know they they're skinny they're short they're like they're, it's it's uh you don't have to be built like a fucking olympian you just have to put in hours and hours and hours and hours over years and i thought you know maybe that could be me maybe i can do that and so i i started by you know not wanting to lose and and just kind of i was like okay i'll do a competition and uh, i lost a match in my first competition and i was embarrassed and i didn't want anyone to see that i remember i made a little highlight reel to just be like this is my first competition <laughs> and um <laughs> I didn't include the part of me being choked out in that one match. And then now that I've done a few more competitions, I uh I've had I've had a few more conversations with wiser people than I am. And one of my like the instructor that I was telling you about, he he looked at me the other day. He said, How do you feel about your last competition? And I was like it fucking sucked to be honest. Like I didn't get the result I was looking for, and he's like, "Dude, get it out of the way now. Like you want that now. Like you'd rather like you're young, you're 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 capable, you're a white belt. Like you're still learning. Like don't you want to learn these lessons now? When you're like not prone to injury, you're not like you don't have a fan. Like you don't have kids. You don't have like you can dedicate so much time to this." And, um, I think that it's been a good way for me to learn that tool because, uh, I don't know if you've heard, do you know the the book of five rings, Miyamoto Musashi? I do. Yeah. Great book. Dude. And there's a lesson from that book and I'm going to butcher it. So I'm not even going to try and quote it directly, <laughs> but basically it's like, uh, the idea of like, when you learn something, uh, in one area of life, you can, and you learn how to master that one thing you can learn how to master anything and that has been uh really eye-opening for me now because it's like now i want more failure like i i wrote down in my journal like i'm doing a a minimum of four competitions this year just to get time on the mats under my belt just so i can expose myself to failures because now it even lights a like it lights a new fire under my ass. I'm like, I'm not gonna get pinned in that position again. I'm gonna learn every escape I possibly can. Well, I'm not gonna get stuck there anymore. Like I it it just um getting on the map in a competition, it just um it exposes your weaknesses in a different level.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean I feel like running has taught me so much about like, um, my strengths, but when I go out and do something that's very long or something like this Everest race, it also strips me bare and raw and exposes a lot of the areas I need to work on both, not only in the sport of running, but as a human, because so much of it is like mental and psychological and one of the things that I really had to work on um, as we've talked about before was just how I dealt with failure, you know, especially after something like the Moab 240, where, you know, I was just beating myself up over the fact that I didn't do the last five miles, um, which is silly in hindsight, you know, I mean that's 98% of the course that I finished and I'm, I could not be more proud of that. Um, But I think, accepting failure with grace was something I struggle with because I was always, you know, I, it was always ingrained into me that like um, failure was bad. And then like, there's like this perfectionist mindset thing kind of going around. And I think, um, I think the things that we see around uh, we kind of ingrain into ourselves, you know, the things that we grew up with, um, And now I can say for sure that I just want to fail. Like I want to fail more, you know, I mean, that's, that's my mantra, you know, fail big, don't win small. Um, I just, I just think that my failures have taught me so much more, um, about what I can be and my potential than my victories have. And I think I just want to say like, it's, awesome to celebrate your victories. Like you got to go out there and like blow off steam and like celebrate those small wins, you know, but like at the same time, um, I feel like if I look back at any single moment where I feel like I've grown as an individual, it's come from, it's come on the heels of some failure. Um, and I'm always just stoked to you know, like for you, like getting more time on the mat for me, that's getting out and continuing to do hard things and ultras that challenge me and just test my physical limits and push me to, um, push me up against the wall mentally as well. Um, so that I can find a new level or, you know, or, you know, I'll either like, I'll either win or I'm going to learn is kind of my mentality now with that stuff.
1: Yeah. I love that, man. I absolutely love that. And I love that. It's, it's um it's so transferable, man. And it doesn't take much to learn that. And, and that's kind of like the, if I were to give like anybody listening to this, uh like some sort of a reminder or takeaway is that like, I mean, you're an amazing human being dude you're extremely inspiring like there's not a lot of people that can say that they've done the things that you've done and I don't think that you have to do those things to feel what I'm like what we're talking about like all like dude I'm not I'm trying to find a good way to word this, but basically I'll, I'll just say the way that my brain's thinking it right now. Like I don't, I don't think it's comparable to compare, um, like entering a jujitsu competition or just training in jujitsu to what you do, but I, we're still receiving the same signals or, or a similar si- signal. Yeah. Like the, the tests don't have to be these life changing tests you just have to try, like, you just have to push yourself a bit. And it's so relative for every single person. Like, I know that your takeaways are going to be much stronger than mine or, or anybody listening to this, but anyone can get these takeaways in some sense or, or, or relative to themselves just by doing something that's uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, it has, I think it goes back to what I was saying in that it's all relative to the person because going back to five years ago, running a 5k was my Everest ultra, you know, that was something that I uh, could not wrap my head around being able to run for 20, 25 minutes, um, for 30 minutes. Um, And because I put myself through that discomfort, uh, I grew, uh, and you're right that like, even though what we're doing are two different things, we're what we're perceiving is the same. And it goes back to the book of five rings and how these things, these hobbies that we're doing, these sports that we're doing are teaching us how to be better at life, uh, because these skills are transferable to life, you know, like in running, we call it a DNF, a did not finish. But like, if you fail something, if you fail something at life, you know, nobody's going to say like, Oh, you DNF, like you DNF this, you know, you DNF this, like you can't keep going now. If you fail a project at work, you know, nobody's going to say, Oh, you DNFed." you know, I guess you can't do this anymore. It just, it doesn't work that way, you know? Um, so I think for me, I think the biggest takeaway really is just like, um, how you handle growth and how you handle failure is probably the biggest thing that I've learned. Um, because, um, if you are the way I'd like to say it other than fail, big, don't win small is if you are human, you're going to fail because you know, fail to fail is to be human. To err is to be human. Like we will make mistakes, but you know, through those mistakes, we learn, we adapt, we grow, and we push forward. And I think that any single person listening to this is capable of that. Uh, whether that be jujitsu, whether that be ultra marathons, whether that be you know being. Uh, an iron chef or like writing your first book and trying to like start by writing your first 200 words or taking an, a writing course, you know, like it's all the same and it all boils down to putting yourself in uncomfortable situations uh, to find that growth.
1: Yeah. One of the, um, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but, um, do you have like any, after you finish a big event like this, do you ever like, I'm sure the thought crosses your mind of like, okay, so what now? Like what? And, and it can be like kind of almost like a depressing thought of like, Oh, like I have nothing to train for. I have nothing to do now. Do you face that? Or do you have like a uh, two part question? Do you face that? Uh, how do you like, kind of think about that? Uh, Or do you already have something up your sleeve that you're training for now already?
0: Um, Well, I'll reverse that question. And I will say that I already have something else that I'm training for (laughs) because the season's not over yet. Um, And I've also planned things like over a year and a half ahead. So I've got like bigger goals and bigger goals and bigger goals. But I think there's a micro, there's a bit of like, uh, like micro emotions, or I don't know what the right word would be like in between and like, af- like the week after the race and a couple of weeks after the race in anticipation of the next one and getting back to like a high level of training where you just have this like emotional letdown because you've done this like amazing big thing. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, things are just sort of back to normal. You're Justin back to the grind of training. And, uh, I think there's a bit of a letdown there, but I, I am able to stay away from it for the most part, because I just keep moving from goal to goal. Um, for me, like I have a hundred mile race in five and a half weeks. <laughs> um, and, uh, You're a lunatic, man. 10 weeks after that, I have uh, my third 200 mile race. Uh, so that'll be 204 miles about, I guess that's about 325 twenty-five, three hundred thirty 30 kilometers. And I'll have a maximum of a
1: hundred and two hours to do it. You're a maniac, man. Do you, what are you, <laughs> are you able to disclose the locations of those races? Are they, uh,
0: yeah, or... yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I'm announcing the 200 for first time on your podcast. Um, oh, yeah. I find on announcing in the next couple of days, um, but the hundred mile race is in Tahoe, um, in Lake Tahoe, and that one I have 36 hours maximum to do, and there's about gosh like 5500 meters of climbing in that race too so there's going to be a a same amount of descent too so that's like ascent and descent um and then the Oregon race has about 9000 meters of climbing and that's uh, a 200 it's in Oregon yeah it's a 200 um it's all like essentially like 90 95% these are both trail races and mountain races and that one is in Oregon. Yeah,
1: that's nuts, man. Your announcement's going to come out before this does, so you don't have to worry about that. This uh, <laughs> this will go up um, on the twenty second, so in like almost two weeks, a week and a half. But um, that's crazy, man. Where in Oregon is it? It's a uh, it's this
0: place called Oak Ridge. It's like two hours from Bend, Oregon, uh, oh. and it's going to be in this wilderness area called the diamond peaks wilderness. Uh, part of it I think is around the Pacific crest trail. And so they've tried to launch this race for a couple of years and it's gone through a few iterations, but they've just had so many fires in the PNW that this is the first year they're really finally able to take it off the ground. And so it's an inaugural race and pretty excited to be one of the first people to do this race. Okay. Yeah. Bend so it's just south of bend you said uh don't know exactly i think i think it's like west northwest of bend then might be more of like south oregon
1: yeah it's kind of like central south kind of i'm just yeah. looking at a map and, now and I the race is in today. uh oak ridge oak ridge yeah i'm just nerding out looking at uh <laughs> looking at a map now yeah, and it's called it's called
0: Oregon two hundred by Go Beyond Racing. Wow, man.
1: Okay, yeah, Oakridge is kind of in between Eugene and and there. Yeah, exactly. Wow, dude, that's insane, man. What um, do you feel more or less nervous for like a hundred mile or a two hundred than than uh your seventy?
0: I think in some ways, I feel a little less nervous because of the terrain, because I'm not traveling internationally, uh, because I'm not in a foreign land, you know, I'm not in the Himalayas. I think that helps quite a bit, (laughs) but I'm keeping like, but I'm trying to keep as neutral of a mindset as possible because in my head, I'm like, it's very easy to say I've done a hundred miles before I can do a hundred again. Um, it's very easy to say I've done, I've crossed 200 miles twice. I can do it again where, but, uh, I know from experience and I think this applies to anything that, you know, despite your experience, every single time you do something again, you have to treat it in some ways as a brand new challenge and you can't underestimate the task that you're, it's kind of a balance between you can't underestimate yourself
1: and you can't underestimate the task either yeah i um that's that's kind of like what happened with me with this last jujitsu competition is like i um and i don't know if it was like something natural that happened within me or the way that i was mentally thinking about it but you like my girlfriend even said a couple days before she's like you don't seem anxious about this you don't seem nervous about it and I was like, yeah, I, I don't feel anxious about it or nervous about it. I don't know why, uh, whether it's just because like I'm kind of more conditioned to competing now or I have this understanding that I'm going to lose matches, um, but I just don't really feel anxious or like nervous about it. And I, I remember saying to her, I said, we'll see how that affects my performance, whether it, it's a positive or a negative thing. And, uh, I don't know if there is a correlation between that, but I didn't do as well as I wanted to. So I, uh, maybe I've performed better under pressure with anxiety. If I psych myself up to make myself feel like it's bigger than it actually is, or I don't know what happened there, but I just, um, yeah, I don't know. There's, it's so weird how the mind can, uh, is just so adaptive and versatile,
0: yeah, really is. I mean, I don't know that there's a real right or wrong answer for how you should approach something. I mean, even in like professional sports, even in like, you know, UFC fighting and everything, it seems like everybody seems to have a different ritual. You know, for one person it might be like, I'm gonna blast music on my headphones. For another person, it might be like, I'm gonna sit here and meditate and do a cold plunge or something. And, you know, for another person might be read a book and not think about this thing that's going to happen in a few hours. And, you know, all of those could be right. It's just, I think a lot of it is perception and, um, just where your mind is at. And I think it's an ever evolving state too. Uh, one of the things that I did the day before to Everest ultra, at base camp was as much as I tried not to think about it. I mean, my goal was to, I made it my goal to not think about the race and I still thought about it, but I made that my goal, like just, you know, this isn't happening. I'm just, just going to pretend like I'm just out here frolicking, you know? And and then when the race happens tomorrow that's when i'll walk in but for now i'm just going to try to keep my mind loose and um with as little stress as possible because that stress will come tomorrow you know
1: yeah and then there's absolute freaks like john jones man who goes out and parties (laughs) the night before a fight doing fucking drugs and drinking and
0: that's not me, man. I'll tell you that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, really uh, cool not that off. not in my world, not in my reality. But some guys can do that and still be fucking animals. But there's just people like that, man. I don't know. I, right.
0: I heard a story recently that Michael Jordan used to have like uh, chicken McNuggets from McDonald's for breakfast and then eat a whole steak before every game. I mean, Dude. <laughs> there are some there's some things I heard.
1: Yeah, there's a dude, there's so many different freaks in so many different sports that just like, yeah, I don't know, they can just do things like that. And man, if it works, it works. Like nobody can top John Jones or Michael Jordan. Like those are the goats. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) That's crazy, man. (laughs) I know. Um, uh, I know you got to get going here in the next few minutes. Uh, you, you were saying, saying you got some obligations to take care of, but um, in the last couple of minutes here, as we wrap up, like uh, did you have any messages you wanted to share any positive? Uh, I don't know, any quotes, anything that you got going on in your mind, anything that we didn't chat about today? Um, Honestly, just like, just,
0: you know, no matter if thing, just going back to what I learned from the race, I mean, even if it seems like you've had a bad day, if you do even one thing or, you know, one small task or one movement forward or something, just, you know, know that you're getting one step closer to where you need to go and just hang in there. And, um, just, uh, just try to approach everything with, a uh, neutrality, you know, whether you have a good day or a bad day just know that um if you control what you can control and that's like that one small thing whether it's one percent forward uh you will get closer to where you need to go uh and you know that is progress no matter how little it is it's still progress
1: yeah man absolutely i um Man, there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about today, and I completely blanked on some of them. (laughs) But uh, I was going to tell you the resolution of my my truck. Remember the last time we talked?
0: Yeah, Yeah, I want to hear about this.
1: Oh, man. Well, uh, finally, I don't remember when it was that we spoke. I think it was mid-April. It was mid-April. Was uh, when my truck got hit. I got my truck back. So dude, it took so long for my insurance to figure out their life. And, uh, like after six weeks, they finally get back to me and they're like, Hey, so it wasn't your fault. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. And then, uh, my truck was in the shop for like a week and a half and, um, talk about divine timing. My, uh, there was a couple other things that went wrong with my truck mechanically, like literally the day before I brought it to the body shop. So I was like, all right, that worked out well. Like while you guys are fixing the body, do you mind taking a look at these couple things? And then uh, the mechanic there didn't want to deal with it, but I got referred to another mechanic who ended up fixing it in one day after. So the body shop takes care of it for a few days and it's all good. And then they end up fixing it and, and detailing it. So my truck's nice and clean and looks good. And then it gets sent off to this other mechanic who ends up, uh, he, he recognizes my last name. He's like, oh, is your, like, are you Danish? Is your dad Danish? And I was like, oh, yeah, my dad is. And he's like, oh, and he starts speaking Danish to me. I'm like, no, 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 like, I don't speak Danish, man. And ah. he's like this uh, older Danish dude. And he ends up, like, diagnosing and fixing my truck in, like, a day. Charges me 300 bucks, and I was so scared it was going to be, like, a couple grand. I'm like fuck yeah dude, you, unreal. Like I ended up meeting a new mechanic, took care of my truck and my truck's all good now. So uh yeah, talk about divine timing, man. It, it was uh, uh,
0: That explains the divine timing conversation. That that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um I was like, man, so weird how the universe works out. Like I was so nervous about that shit and it's just like all I had to do was just keep focusing on the on the day. I I was gonna ask you, uh, you got a jet, man. I was just gonna ask you what, why that, um, why that impact you? Why you, why you like that so much? The divine timing. What, oh, thing. the divine timing. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, the
0: I think it just impacted me in the sense of like I've had so many moments like that where I felt like man, this is, so, this is such a shitty situation. I'm stressed out. Like, So much is out of my control. And it feels like an out-of-control spiral. And then in hindsight, you look back at it and you're like, man, this is just one step of a series of steps. Or it opened the opportunity to a new path. Or like we were talking about with the run, it opened the door to me even, you know, breathing the same air as like these other international athletes or these Nepalese athletes and doing something like this. I mean, like, um, so it just impacted me in that way. Cause I never heard anyone call it divine timing. Um, and so it kind of
1: was just putting words to something I'd been thinking about for a very long time. Yeah, man. I, I, I think of that all the time even to borrow some words from drake man like it's like it's god's plan like you have no idea what he has planned for you you have no idea it's god's plan uh, we're just like literally like following a map that's been mapped out for us and we're like man why did this happen to us but lo and behold it's like you were saved from four other things like be thankful for what happened are you kidding me right now like right yeah yeah it's um it's just something i've been thinking a lot about but um yeah, I got a I got a buddy of mine who wrote down a mantra on the whiteboard that I have. Uh, it's now in my kitchen. It used to be in my office. But he wrote down in permanent Sharpie on this whiteboard, everything's always working out for me. And that's the one thing I just keep saying to me all the time, like myself all the time, is like, everything's always working out for me. Like, I'm going to worry about this right now when I know that everything's always working out for me. And the uh... way... It's, it's crazy how your thoughts shape your reality, which is something that maybe we can talk about next time, but it's uh, changed my perspective on life so much just having that mantra. Yeah, man, we'll have to
0: talk about doing round five because I think that is a great topic in itself. Beautiful.
1: Om Gandhi, thank you very much for your time, brother. I'll let you go. Um, thank you for everything that you do thank you for being you man and thank you for uh, being so uh giving with your time i uh, I'm very grateful for you man appreciate yeah, I'm you very
0: I'm very grateful for you mark I mean it's always a great conversation and thank you for thank you for just being you and um man like I always come out of these conversations learning something new um, and just being able to reflect on the things that I've learned and gain a new perspective on those things as well so i really appreciate these conversations
1: dude i feel positive i feel uplifted right now and uh i feel motivated to go out and get some man so i hope you have a good night i hope everybody listening has a good night Uh, much love and peace out peace out everybody